Do you want to make a podcast? Spotify's got a platform that lets you make one super easily. It's called Spotify for Podcasters. It lets you record and edit podcasts right from your phone or computer. So no matter what your setup is like, you can start creating today. Then you can distribute your podcast to Spotify and everywhere else podcasts are heard. Video podcasts are also available on Spotify. You know I love that, and I promise you the other platforms don't offer that. With Spotify for Podcasters, you can also earn money in a variety of ways, including ads and podcast subscriptions. And best of all, it's totally free with no catch. I've been using Spotify for Podcasters from the very start. I highly recommend you give it a try. Just don't post on Monday. Download the Spotify for Podcasters app or go to www.spotify.com slash podcasters to get started. Hey everyone, Gil Gross here, and it is time for another mailbag where I answer your hot takes, your observations, your questions, and ultimately your comments about tennis or anything else. I posted on the YouTube community tab over 24 hours ago, got a healthy dose of comments as I would expect the week after Wimbledon. So thank you for that. Remember, you can also leave a question or a comment for the mailbag by uh, leaving a review on Apple Podcasts. And speaking of podcasts, I was very happy to see, was proud to see that this week uh, I was number two on the U.S. Apple Podcast charts, Monday Match Analysis was, uh, which was great, right behind the Tennis Podcast, which is a a staunch and firm number one, has been for a long time, Uh, but it was great to see that. Obviously, more people like to watch on YouTube, that's great, Uh, but the The podcast side of things, I value, and I thank you for everybody who made that happen. Just want to put that out there. Uh, Maybe I'll get Twitter involved in the mailbag next week. At Gil underscore gross is the handle. But let's get to the first comment. It comes from Sam Collins. Sam is a member. Thank you for that. Hi, Gil. I find it very interesting how certain players seem to be able to improve and build on their games. Carlos, Big Three, Rude, etc., while others can't or don't. I find it strange that players like Medvedev, Rublev, and Tsitsipas have improved only barely and added little, if anything, to their games. I do not doubt these players' dedication and discipline. So what could explain this? This is like a fantastic question. It's something that you could really go hours and hours on because it's such a deep topic and it's such a central topic to what we look for and how we consume professional tennis and follow professional tennis. So I got to pick and choose here with what I'm going to talk about and what I'm going to not, because again, otherwise I could go 30 minutes. I think the first thing is noticing kind of patterns about what players are able to easily improve and what they aren't. And I think uh, physically, that's where oftentimes with young players, you are going to see a very natural improvement, something that you can almost always account for. Whenever you have a a 20-year-old or a a 19, 20, 21-year-old, you can almost guarantee that they're at a stage where they are going to be getting stronger physically in the coming years. Now, not always, right? Sometimes they come on, and I think, you know, the women develop a little bit earlier than the men physically, but sometimes they come on and they're ready to go, but usually not. So, you know, you look at a player like Yannick Sinner, or I'll take a player who you mentioned here, Casper Rude. Like, they are making physical jumps kind of year after year after year. Casper might be done with that by now. Uh, But that's kind of the first thing. And then mentally, 
that usually takes some time. Are you used to big matches? Are you are you able to focus for long periods of time? Are you professional on and off the court? Do you control your emotions well? Do you have big match experience? It's another thing. Like that is almost a natural thing that comes with time that you'll see most players improve mentally as they go along in their career. But the technical side is much less of a guarantee. It's not, it's never a shoe in that players are going to improve their weaknesses technically. And I think that's kind of what you're referring to when you look at Daniil Medvedev, who doesn't have a transition game that he can rely on. Or you look at Andre Rublev, who doesn't have good hands, doesn't hit good drop shots, doesn't hit good volleys, you know, just doesn't really have a lot of baseline variety either. Or you look at Tsitsipas, who just doesn't hit his backhand return well off of clay. That's what I think you're, you're referring to. You're looking at technical weaknesses. And those are, those are hard to get better. And it doesn't always happen. And that's where I think the big three, they are, are more so exceptions to the rule, right? When you look at Federer uh, improving his one-hander, making it a more offensive weapon, flattening it out later in his career, uh, hitting over the return of serve instead of chipping every time, adding the drop shot to help him win on clay in 2009 at Roland Garros. When you look at Nadal and the improvements that he made, not only on his serve, but also on his forehand and also on his backhand— and, you know, becoming a, an all-court player to really the, the highest degree. Uh, Djokovic improving his serve vastly, improving his forehand vastly. You know, these guys uh, are not normal in their ability to do that. Uh, I think that they have an unbelievable combination of, you know, first of all, natural ability, which, which you need to make a change like that, uh, but also open-mindedness combined with a, a level of, of stubbornness, I think, and selfishness and kind of self-belief uh, is, is important. But I think you also can't take it so far where you're like, I'm not going to change. I'm good enough. My game is good enough. You, you need to be kind of open to, no, like we're going to make this better and I'm completely open to changing whatever it is I, I trust the people who are going to try to work with me and make this change. But it, it is there is a little bit of a mystery aspect to it. And honestly, I don't know if the last minute of me talking has been all that insightful. Uh, but there there is just going to be certain times. Like I think of – I was just reading Twitter and Stevie Johnson was uh, included in this exercise where it was like – kind of create the the best player you can with $18. And $5 would be Djokovic's backhand, and $1 would be Stevie Johnson's backhand, right? So you you have to kind of figure out what you want. Maybe I'll make a video about it. I don't know. Uh, but Jessica Pagula commented on Twitter, and, he was, and she was like, uh, I'll take Stevie's backhand kind of as a joke. And then Stevie goes, if you take my backhand, you should get your money back. A guy like Stevie Johnson knows damn well that his backhand is a weakness and he is he has spent his whole life i'm sure wishing that his backhand would be less of a weakness and it just has never happened for him and he's a really talented i mean needless to say 
this guy is an unbelievably talented tennis player when it comes to hand-eye coordination. He serves at a world-class level. He hits forehands at a world-class level. He's got a great slice backhand, but he's got a block when it comes to the two-hander. And these kinds of things from a from a technical standpoint can pop up. And I, I think I think a lot of it comes really, really early on in development, but it, it's an it's a really interesting topic. And I'm gonna leave it at that. Next one is from HIH5868. Do you think the victory by Alcaraz has caused the fire to remain for Nadal to come back strong next year and try to tie Novak in slams at the French? That is, if Novak doesn't win U.S. Open or Australia, I think Nadal will come back with fire if healthy. I don't normally worry about Nadal and fire. It's just not, not something that I track as carefully. And you're probably thinking, well, Gil, you, you tend to talk about motivation with Novak a lot more often. because, And that is true because Djokovic is a guy who I don't really see physically declining in any meaningful way. But I have seen suffer some ups and downs just in, you know, emotionally. In fact, the only real down I've seen in his career in, you know, tail end 2016, 2017. Yes, there was an elbow thing going on at the time. But also, I don't think he was right. I don't think he had the—I don't think he was good mentally at that time. I don't think he was happy. I don't think he had the fighting spirit. I think there were a lot of things bothering him. And I also think that he had accomplished a ton in 2016. And there might have been a little bit of a motivational dip before he kind of refound the fire. Uh, but, the, but you know, that is why I look at a player like Djokovic, who also, I think, has been motivated by chasing records throughout his career, which is not a bad thing at all. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, somebody who... Somebody who pays attention to the record books and, again, uses the record books to drive him along with just the competition of of competing alongside alongside fellow greats and trying to catch them. Uh, that is why I bring motivation into a conversation about Novak Djokovic next couple years. I do that all the time. But for Rafa, that is clearly not the obstacle. The obstacle for Rafa is clearly his body. And it's never been really about motivation because I believe Nadal when he says, you know, he goes out there and kind of is pretty good at motivating from within, you know, without having to rely on really anything external. And I think that is is clearly true by just how level his his fight and his effort maintain, right? The, the, the thing with Rafa, part of the thing with Rafa that has been so admired by by everybody and it's very well documented is the guy fights for the point, seemingly, and maybe this has diminished just a little bit, but the guy has always fought just as hard when he's up three love in the set and down 30 love in the return game. He fights just as hard there as when it's four all deuce. That has always been a thing with, with Nadal where it's like, whoa, this guy just goes point to point to point and basically plays like it's the last point of his life every time. That is completely rare, completely unique. Jimmy Connors had a similar thing. It's a great weapon to have as a player. And that's why um, I don't know that 
I don't know that we should doubt Nadal when when Nadal has has always been like when he's asked about records, he always brushes it aside. He's like, look, uh, it's great. I, I just try to win as much as possible, but I'm not really paying attention to that. Uh, maybe he is paying attention to that and he's just kind of being cliche there and kind of giving answers. But I, I don't think motivation is a factor that you look at when it comes to Nadal's comeback. It's all about if he's going to be healthy. And I think that is where that should be should be uh, ended. Jedi Jediel Nunez. Okay. Hi, Gil. Love the Wimbledon coverage. As profound as always. <laughs> profound. What do you think will be Alcaraz's biggest threats in his career to fulfilling his potential as a future GOAT or achieving the level of the big three? For example, not having equal adversaries as each of the big three had in their career, longevity, etc. This has been at the top of mind since our expectations for him as high as ever. Would love to hear your perspective. First of all, thank you. First of all, thank you for not asking me like, Gil, do you think Alcaraz will win 23 majors? Because that is not an interesting question. Because the answer is like, look, I don't know. My God. Uh, but... What is a good question is what are the obstacles to that? So so job well done on a good question here. The answer du jour right now is obviously, oh, you got to make sure the body holds up. Got to make sure he doesn't get injured. That's the answer du jour. Got to say, I, I don't think, I don't love that answer. Now, I think for any player, that is a factor because that's always a, a really important factor in, in your ability to have a great career. I would say Rafa has done a great job of challenging the idea that you need to have a clean bill of health throughout your career in order to be an all-time great and compile miraculous and remarkable records. Right, Rafa has certainly challenged that. He's had his fair share of injuries. I think it's, I think it's fair to say. Uh, but yeah, I mean, he needs to stay healthy. It's just I challenge the idea that Alcaraz has had this really concerning pattern of of health issues. I, I, I challenge that. He's had two injuries. All right, he's had a, an ab, an abdominal uh, tear, which is like one of the most common injuries that a tennis player can possibly have. You see every player having that at some point in their career. That's an exaggeration. But basically, I, I consider that basically the most common injury on tour. Like, it just happens all the time. So, got Alcaraz, all right? The, the abdominal tear. And then he, he uh, pulled slash tore his hamstring. I don't know how extreme it was, um, what grade of tear it was, whatever. But I think he had, like, a, a hamstring pull. And he missed the Australian Open. But, again... That's it. Like, if you want to fixate that he on him missing Acapulco, if you want to fixate on him missing Monte Carlo, I think you're out of your mind. I, I really do. I think you're out of your mind if you want to fixate on that and see, like, be like, see, he's got injury issues, got health issues. It's like, no. The guy is winning titles before and after those injuries. It makes perfect sense for him to to pull out of those events just for purpose of rest. So as far as I'm concerned. Carlos Alcaraz has had two injuries in his career, and everybody thinking like that that he has some sort of injury issue. I think they need to slow their roll. 
I do. I think you should slow your roll on that. Uh, the cramping, again, I don't see that as a long-term obstacle. Cramped against Sinner in Miami. Cramped against Djokovic in Paris. But I'm not going to sit here with a straight face and say the guy who has the record for most time spent on court en route to a major title, the guy who just beat Djokovic in a five-set Wimbledon final, I am not, which took nearly five hours, I'm not going to sit here with, and say that his like endurance, his ability to physically endure long matches is a problem. No, I'm not going to. I Again, I think there is so much evidence that goes against that along with some morsels of evidence that, that go for it, right? Um, so his biggest threats right now are, in my mind, pretty unclear. I will say, do not fall into the trap of thinking that Alcaraz is not going to have... Okay, I saw... This is another thing I saw on Twitter. I saw on Twitter somebody said... Who do you think Alcaraz's, I think it was Relevant Tennis, said, who do you think Alcaraz's biggest rivals throughout his career will be? And the options were, I, I might get this slightly wrong, but the options were something like Holger Runa, Yannick Sinner, Daniil Medvedev, uh, something like that, right? Stefano Tsitsipas, like people like that. That is, it, it's, such a, it's such a pitfall. That we go into. We can only consider rivals that are Alcaraz's age or older and Carlitos being 20. Uh, it completely skews our perception of who Alcaraz is going to be competing with in order for him to have great success throughout his career. Completely skews it. Because there is a over, in my estimation, over a 50% chance that Alcaraz's greatest rival in his career we have never heard of. We have never heard of that player. There's over a 50% chance that that is the case. I mean, it might be Runa. It, it might be Holger Runa, who we've heard of. But you got to remember that more people are going to come along. And we don't know what those people are going to look like. That's all I got on this. Um, again... Coming into 2023, I think it's worth saying, I was curious to see, could Alcaraz get a little bit more solid, have less erratic, less moments where, where he's making a lot of errors and playing erratic off the ground. I was looking for, is he going to improve his first serve? I was looking for, is he going to improve his nerve management? Of course, there have been ups and downs this year, but mostly at this point, ups handle the expectations. He continues to improve in every area that he needs to improve in. And that's why it's uh, it's difficult to answer that kind of question. Next one from Sloppy Gamer. Hi, Gil. Just a quick one. Over the past month or so, we've seen somewhat of a rejuvenation of players from yesteryear returning to the tour. Raonich, Anderson, Nishikori, Wozniacki. Thoughts on their chances for the rest of the season and beyond? Good to see. Happy to see. 
I love it when uh, when players uh, come back, and especially when kind of injury is the the determining factor, as it usually is, when a player has to kind of leave the the tour for a while. I know that Milos Raonic has been through uh, nightmare after nightmare on the injury front. I think Kevin Anderson has as well. Nishikori certainly has. Uh, Wozniacki is the player who I think more retired on her own terms. You know, she she wanted to. She was like, "All right, I'm good." Let's, I'm, I, I've accomplished what I want to accomplish, and now I want to start a family. So for Wozniacki, it wasn't as much injury-related, and uh, now she has, has been a mother for a couple of years, and she's ready to go back on tour. I'm really excited to see what she's able to do. Um, so thoughts on their chances for the rest of this season and beyond? Well... I think Raonic, among the men, has the best chance to make some noise. Just given um, his his weapons, his play style, his ability to kind of take stress off of his body. Never been a player who's reliant. And that, that that's not about not getting injured. Let me be clear. You know, because no matter how you play, the tennis tour is physical. You can't just you can't just serve your way. Uh, out of the tennis tour being physical. You can't. Uh, so no matter what, uh, it's going to be incumbent. Uh, sorry, it's going to be it's going to be essential for these players to um, to stay healthy. And it's going to be the biggest challenge for these players is going to be to stay healthy. Imperative was the word that I was looking for. Uh, but I think for Raonich... If his athleticism is diminished, which I think you know you can expect all of these players that their athleticism, their movement, their explosiveness will be a little bit diminished. He is the guy who I think that will be as little you know uh, not as much of an issue for just given the the great weapons that he has serve forehand, pretty good volleyer as well. Uh, brings the, kind of the slice backhand to try to set up his forehand. Looks to run around a lot. I, I just think that Raonic can play this kind of very aggressive style and and focus on on holding serve with his bomb of a serve. Kevin Anderson, what I hope is that he comes out here with a little bit of a different outlook on his tennis. Because I, I did always feel about Kevin Anderson, or I do feel about Kevin Anderson, that, that there is a little bit more meat on the bone, juice to be squeezed out of his potential, if he can just play with a little bit more creativity. You know, I... I he, he came out with the big serve, the really great ball striking, very consistent, good power. But, man, there's just no net play. There's no variety. There's not a lot of unpredictable shot selection at, at any point in his game. You kind of know what he's going to do. And he's a fine mover, but not a great mover. And I imagine now that he's older, he's going to be an even worse mover. So I just want to see Anderson like, let's move forward a little bit. Let's use the, the serve and the power ground strokes and the smooth ball striking. But let's try to finish points here because if he's going to hang back and kind of play this very, very monotonous kind of consistent power baseline style without the level of movement that we even see from like a Rublev or a Sinner and in, in some ways with less 
with less baseline power than those guys as well. But he does have a great backhand. I love his two-hander. Uh, I, I don't think that's really going to be a recipe for Anderson to get back to being a top 20 player. So I, I do feel like he needs to add something. For Nishikori, I, I do have a little bit of concern just because the weapons aren't there. I mean, he he did play a very, very physical style. Very physical. So I think it's going to be the biggest challenge for him to get to a level where physically he's... He's at a, a high, high level of performance. Otherwise, I don't see how he can get back into the top 20. And Wozniacki, I'm actually, I think her comeback could be really, really good. She's not that old. That's the first thing to consider. Uh, she will be playing with, I think, a lot of freedom. I think flattening out the ball. I think hitting a little bit bigger. I think we can expect those things. We already started to see that uh, in her, in her, she's 33, by the way. Uh, we already started to see that later in her, in her career, and she is in tremendous shape, and she hasn't had a lot of injury mileage. She hasn't been hurt much, so that's really good signs for her comeback. Let us go to the next one. It is from Kloba9414. Hey, Gil, thanks for your analysis. The Wimbledon final was absolutely amazing, but I must admit I was a tad disappointed with the semis. Although we had the top four players this season, I couldn't help but yearn for Djokovic versus Medvedev and Alcaraz versus Sinner instead. Their head-to-head -head records are particularly intriguing, and I'd love to hear your take on why these matchups are always so evenly matched and more exciting for us to watch. Congrats on your success. Thank you. Yes. Yes, yes, yes. I was thinking the same thing. You know, matchups are a big deal in tennis. We know this, and... These semifinals were a prime example of that. We almost would have certainly gotten more intriguing matchups if it was Djokovic versus Medvedev and if it were Sinner versus Alcaraz. What is my take on why these matchups are so evenly matched and more exciting for us to watch? Look, you guys have already heard, if you've listened to any of my coverage on Alcaraz, you've already heard what I think the best way to play him is. I think the best way to play him which Djokovic can do, but did he did he really do it to the best of his ability? Probably, probably not in the Wimbledon final. But I, I think you need to bring big power, um, and you need to try to rush him, and you need to try to make him play a ton of defense. Make him play as much defense as possible. I think that's the best way to play Alcaraz. And Sinner does that. You know, we saw against Novak where he's like, he's hitting every ball. With tons of pace, he's barely taking his foot off the gas pedal. He's flooring it on almost every forehand. And we're looking at averages around averages around 82 miles per hour on his forehand speed regularly, which means like that's his that's his rally ball, which is really insane. And you know, you go to the backhand of center and you don't get any relief. You're still getting big power. And that's why it's hard to be offensive against him. But what Djokovic can do, is what he is amazing at. He is an amazing shock absorber. He absorbs pace as well as anybody ever. And he is going to stay consistent. He is going to keep the ball deep in the court. And he is going to let Yannick beat himself. And that's what he did. So that is why Sinner, with his linear power, his linear pace, like that is just, that is just not something that Novak doesn't like. It is something that Alcaraz, I would say, doesn't like. Although... Over the course of Wimbledon, I must say, he really did a great job of dealing with it. 
Now, uh, kind of, we covered why Alcaraz Medvedev is a bad matchup. Alcaraz Medvedev is a bad matchup because, uh, for one, Medvedev is not somebody who makes his opponents play a lot of defense. So it is the antithesis of what I think is good against Alcaraz. In fact, he allows his opponents to play a lot of offense and hopes that his retrieval skills, his counterpunching skills are so good that he is going to kind of kind of match up in, in that style. Uh, but Alcaraz is able to, to have all the time in the world against him. So plenty of time, able to play offense, and he's able to finish with his touch in the forecourt when Medvedev is, is very you know comfortable and makes a living out of dropping back deep in the court to absorb the, the, the power and to kind of use his linear, uh, his retrieval skills against, against power, right? And he's got great retrieval skills against power. Uh, but Alcaraz can easily use his net play and use his drop shots to work around that. Um, and, I mean, you know, just open up the court with angles and he has so much, so much firepower uh, when he does decide to drive the ball, that on a grass court, certainly even that is good enough to hit the ball through Medvedev. And then Medvedev versus Djokovic, on the other hand, well, that's where Daniil, you know, matches Novak for consistency, matches him a lot of the times for depth, and can kind of go toe-to-toe for Novak, especially backhand with Novak, especially backhand and backhand. And he actually uh, forces Djokovic to kind of create forces him to find finishes, find offense, which is actually a lot of what Alcaraz did to Novak. And we saw that, you know, that is, Djokovic would much rather play a Yannick Sinner, who he knows he can just get errors from, than have to kind of constantly be creating, generating, which Medvedev forces his opponents to do. The way Alcaraz was doing it, you know, when I say that, just, uh, you know, he got consistent. But if you look at the way he was returning serve, especially the first serve, a lot of low-paced stuff, a lot of slice, a lot of balls in the middle. And Alcaraz just kind of backing his speed, saying, look, you know, I'm not going to try to do too much on the return. Let's make it in play. And let's force Djokovic to come up with something. And that that paid dividends as Novak's forehand wasn't really firing to the best of, it, of, of its abilities at all times throughout the match. All right, this one is from Marek. Do you think that the Wimbledon final between Alcaraz and Djokovic was the best Grand Slam match of this decade so far? What other Grand Slam matches of this decade deserve consideration. Well, definitely uh, definitely Nadal, Medvedev, Australian Open 2021. I thought that match was a little bit better in terms of drama. I think quality-wise they were similar, but I think for for Nadal to to come up with the comeback that he did, it was so improbable. So improbable. It was one of the great best-of-five-set comebacks given all the circumstances that that I think I've ever seen. And in that respect, I, I thought it was a slightly more memorable match 
than than this Wimbledon match. But but let's go let's go through it. I want to kind of go through the list. I think it's worth doing that. Um, so let us let us do that. Um, okay. So in the decade, we had Djokovic team Australian Open. That was a five setter. That was a five setter. But that was not. I mean. Yeah, no, it was not up to the level of this Wimbledon final, I don't think. Um, especially the level in the fifth set. Uh, Djokovic was great, but team wasn't in that fifth set. And and if you'll remember, Novak kind of played a little bit of possum at, at some points in that match. So, um, you know, in the in the third set, for example, he kind of kind of took his foot off the gas. Wasn't feeling well, I don't think. All right, U.S. Open 2020. You know the the nerviest match I've ever seen. You know they they played horrible tennis. I mean it was it was interesting to watch. That's for sure. But you know team over Zverev there. Obviously that wasn't a classic. Uh, then the French Open in 2020 that was straight sets for Nadal over Djokovic. Australian Open 2021 that was straight sets for Djokovic over Medvedev. That was not dramatic. That was a brilliant performance, but it was not close. Uh, French Open final in 2021, not not an awesome match. It, it wasn't. I thought. You know the first set was was really good, and and then Djokovic, Tsitsipas actually crushed Novak in the in the second set to go up two sets to love. But uh, the last three sets just weren't all that interesting. It it felt the whole time like Novak was in control, like Tsitsipas was completely outmatched, and that there was nothing he could do <clears throat> for for three sets there. And uh, you know Tsitsipas never come cl- came close to winning that final, despite being up two sets to love. Djokovic over Berrettini, definitely not, you know, predictable match and not not awesome. Medvedev over Djokovic, U.S. Open 2021. No, that was a disappointing match. I mean, I thought that that was going to be a better match. And Novak just was kind of out of gas and physically and mentally exhausted. And and Daniil was a brick wall. I mean, he was going to—oh, I'm sorry. I'm not showing myself right now. Uh, Daniil was going to just make Novak— suffer and earn every inch of it and Novak could was not up to that task so that was a kind of a disappointing final in a lot of ways um but also I mean look keep in mind by the way as I go through this I'm just talking about entertainment so no disrespect to any of these winners whatsoever Nadal Medvedev Australian Open 2022 yeah I just talked about that uh, French Open in 2022 was Nadal over Rude. It was domination. It was a terrible final. Uh, Wimbledon 2022. I really loved this four-setter. You know, sometimes we get into the habit of only, only regarding matches at the highest esteem when they go five sets. Sometimes we get into that. It's a bad habit. You know, we should really respect four-setters. Like, sometimes four-setters are great. Three-setters, eh. Usually not great. But this was a great four-setter. I loved this final. This is one of my favorite major finals of the decade. djokovic Kyrgios. Uh U.S. Open 2022, Alcaraz over Rude. Not, not an awesome final. Alcaraz felt like the better player the whole time. I mean, Rude, Rude won the third set in a tie break. But it never felt like Casper was going to win. Uh, Australian Open this year, not interesting. Straight sets, Djokovic over Tsitsipas. Uh, Roland Garros this year, straight sets, Djokovic over Rude. This was, again, this was the best. I thought that Rude played the best in this final, but it was still straight sets and it was a loss. So 
My answer to this is that it's the second best major final of the decade. So, it, you know, it was excellent. That's really good. But I don't think, I thought that, especially because Nadal and Medvedev in the fifth set was, uh, was really, they went deep into the fifth, 7-5, uh, you know, down to the wire. Both players kind of picked up their quality in that fifth set. But all the twists and turns that we saw in, in that match and, and the miraculous comeback, I think, by Rafa, that to me uh, is still number one, you know, just in terms of enjoyment. Uh, but this is number two. This is number two. You know, this had great external factors also. It's kind of the arrival of Carlos Alcaraz. All right, let's go to the next one. It is from Quantum Tennis 991. It's a really long one. Hi, Gil. Talking about the finals, I was wondering whether Novak underestimated Carlos's abilities on grass. Novak in the finals preview presser. There's not a preview presser, but I think you're referring to the presser after his semifinal. Remarked that Carlos's tennis is built for clay and slow hardcourt. He also added that Carlos's improvement on grass was fast, though he didn't stress on it a lot. Fast forward to the trophy ceremony. Novak says that he was very surprised how quickly Carlos adapted to the surface, where he did not expect him to do so so early. Then he says in the final presser that he had expected Carlos to challenge him on only clay and hardcourt, not on grass. Could this be the reason why Novak uh, didn't keep his level consistent? The reason why he played some loose points in the second set tiebreaker. Maybe he felt Carlos's level would drop eventually, or Carlos would not match his level, or he would succumb to the pressure in crucial moments. Even in their previous encounter, we saw how Carlos cramped. That also may have relaxed him a bit. Because if it were Roger or Rafa instead of Carlos on Sunday, I don't think he would have collapsed on clutch moments. Yes, he could have dropped his level in some stages, but he would have been firing when it mattered most. Some other matches where he was able to make a comeback. French Open 2021 final, Wimbledon 2021 final, Australian Open 2020 final. What is your take on this? Or is it just law of averages, as you said earlier? There's two parts to this. If you're asking me about the comments at face value, I am a little bit surprised. I do feel like Novak should understand that a player who is unbelievably aggressive, like hyper-aggressive player, Carlos Alcaraz, can flatten out his forehand, can flatten out his backhand. You know, it's not like he can only play with heavy spin. Like, he has the versatility to go other directions with it. He's got a good backhand slice. He's got a phenomenal transition game which I think already is probably the best in the top 10. Like, yeah, his serve is not as polished as it could be, although he can still pump it up to 130. Like, I don't know why Novak looked at his game and expected that he wouldn't challenge him on grass as well. I, I think that those... Again, I'm, I'm surprised at those comments, especially with the way modern grass courts are playing now, where it's not so lightning quick where, you know, you barely have any time and, you know, you, you have to just hit great serves and hope that, that you're going to win the point in two shots. It's not really like that anymore. So at the end of the day, I'm a little bit surprised. Where I have a harder time, I have a harder time in assuming that that is why Novak played, had some moments where he wasn't at his best in the final. 
at the end of the day, I don't think he played that bad in the final. And, you know, although he made some crucial mistakes in big spots, he is human, and it does happen. And the reality is Alcaraz was was good enough to to win the match, whereas I think in, in a lot of cases what it would have been is Novak makes some of those big mistakes and he's able to win the match anyway because he's just the better player, right? I think that that, that that happens often. And in this case, we correctly, correctly emphasize those big moments and those crucial mistakes because at the end of the day, like, we're not reaching here. You know, that was set point to go up two sets to love. There's no, there's no agenda setting to focus on that. That is just something that objectively needs to be focused on. And when you look at the break point at the start of the fifth set, when Novak is on a huge run of games, and then he would get broken in the next game to go down in the fifth set. That's not agenda setting to focus on that. That's not cherry picking. Okay, that is, we are, you know, anybody who focuses on that is correct to focus on that. That being said, it is also correct to say that there was plenty of other match. There was the rest of the fifth set where Alcaraz had to fend off Djokovic and maintain that advantage. There was... The third set, the entire third set, which Alcaraz won 6-1. You know, he, he had to be good enough to, to, to get the better of, of play over those stretches of time. And I think, you know, despite Djokovic's, you know, Djokovic faltering in, in some of those big moments where it, it's uncharacteristic. And historically, especially in major finals, he has not. And he has never made those kinds of mistakes, or at least hasn't in a very, very long time. Uh, normally it wouldn't cost him. It's because Alcaraz is so good. That is why not only did Djokovic make those mistakes, but he lost the match. I don't know that you could say that, you know, the underestimation, look, maybe, but I, I have trouble making that, that leap. I do think the comments are strange, though. From Kaya. This is also kind of about surface. Uh, we often think of grass and clay being opposites. The former is quick and low bouncing. The latter is slow and high bouncing. And then hard courts are somewhere in between these extremes. So it's not surprising that we have many players who are good on clay but not on grass, such as Root, and some players who are good on grass but not on clay, Bublik. Then we have interesting cases where players thrive on neutral surfaces. For example, why was Rafa more successful at Wimbledon early in his career than Australian Open and U.S. Open? How do we explain players like Halep and Muguruza who only have Roland Garros and Wimbledon titles? Bjorn Borg only has Roland Garros and Wimbledon titles. Even Ash Barty's first two slam wins were on neutral surfaces. Von Drosova's best results are on clay and grass. The only explanations I can think of are movement and inconsistent bounces leading to more racket skill improvisation. But am I missing other reasons? And then there's uh, some comments also on Kasakina. Okay, not going to read that just because this got too long. Um, it's a little bit case by case here. But the, the surfaces do have some interesting nuances. Uh, first, let's just kind of go through everybody who you mentioned. And then I want to talk about some players who come to mind when it comes to this question. Uh, Rafa, more successful at Wimbledon early in his career. Part of that might have been motivation, honestly. 
Now, I, I just said earlier in the podcast that with Rafa, motivation isn't a big deal. I stand by that. Uh, but I will say that his biggest goal was to win Wimbledon. Like, that's kind of what he wanted to do more than anything. And I think New York bothered him. The the courts bothered him. And I think the, the, the noisiness, the hustle-bustle bothered him. He didn't feel at home. Um, and that was definitely a factor for Borg. Borg hated being in New York. He did not like the vibes. Um, Muguruza, do not try to explain Muguruza. Never, never try to explain her. There's, you know, look. I mean, one of the weirdest stats ever. Muguruza, I'm pretty sure she's got 12 career titles. No, no, 13 career Let me, let me make this, let me be sure about this. Garbine, Muguruza. It makes no sense, this stat. Uh, Got to go to her career statistics page. So, obviously, Muguruza has two major titles, Roland Garros, Wimbledon. But overall in her career, she's got, I think, yeah, she's got 10 titles. And they're all on hard court. Every single title that she's won is on hardcourt. So you can't say like that she's an example of what you're talking about because all of her titles are on hardcourt except the two majors. It's just a funky stat. I mean, Muguruza just never tried to explain her because nothing makes any sense. And I mean that respectfully because she's had an unbelievable career. She's accomplished amazing things. But if you're looking for patterns, you're not going to find any. Um... Halep is an interesting one. Yeah. Uh, I think Halep is a little bit in the, you know, some players, I think, especially on the women's side, they they play flat, a little bit flat. Uh, they're a little bit underpowered, but they're, they're great movers and they're great defenders and they grind well. And I think for Halep, it's kind of that. It's that, you know, at Wimbledon, she can get, you know, better penetration and a little bit more offense. <clears throat> Um, but at Roland Garros, she can obviously use her rally tolerance and her toughness. So she kind of gets the best of both worlds kind of thing there. Uh, kind of like what you said about Kasekina at the bottom of the comment. Uh, I want to bring up Berrettini here. Berrettini is a great example of how the nuances of the surfaces can kind of help you out in both ways. His, his worst surface is hardcore. Why is he best on – why is he good on clay? Because on clay, he can find more forehands, plain and simple. It's just serve, forehand, 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 and then he's got the massive weight of shot on the forehand. He can kind of cheat to his left, uh, and he's got more time off the bounce to use his footwork to run around and hit forehands, load up forehands from higher contact points. The more time he has on that forehand, the bigger and badder it is. Uh, you know, he can also kind of recover when players go into the open court a little bit better because the court gives him more time to catch up with the ball. Uh, but then he's also best on grass. Well, the serve gets him more free points. And on the backhand, which is his weakness, guess what? He can slice, and the slice is more effective. So you have to look at the, the entire kind of the sum of Berrettini's game. What surface is his forehand best on? The clay. That's where his forehand is the biggest factor. What surface is his serve? 
the best on? What surface is his backhand the best on? The grass. What about hardcourt? None of the above. So you got to look at nuances here. Um, but it's interesting when players pop up where they're better on the natural surfaces. Also, Borg, though. Borg is an interesting one. Did he play? Was he playing Australian Opens? Let me look that up real quick. Why do I feel like he wasn't always really playing? The A-O. Yeah, he played it once in 1974. Yeah, so I, I was correct. Again, again, folks, keep that historical context. When you're looking at the record books, stuff was different back then. Keep it in mind. All right. From Sharon. After seeing their performance on grass, could you rank the slices of the top 10? Who has improved the most and who hasn't? Fun activity. Yeah. Only on, on this YouTube channel do we do things like this, right? Let's rank the slices. Let's do it. All right. Uh, I'm just going to eye test it. I'm not going to read out everybody. All right, best slice in the top 10. Best slice in the top 10. Who is it? I'm going to say I'm going to say it's Alcaraz. Yeah, I think Alcaraz. Okay, number 2. Second best slice. I'm going to go Djokovic. <laughs> it's the top 2 in the world, huh? Number 3, Tiafo. Tiafo's got a really good slice. Uh, for some reason, sometimes I don't feel like he knows how to use it. Doesn't really pick his targets all that well. I, I think that it could be better than Novak's if he was just a little bit more sure of himself on how to deploy it and when to deploy it. He's especially good though. I think at just kind of leaving the ball short in the court. If he's playing somebody who isn't comfortable in the forecourt, Tiafu is pretty good at just drawing them in. Great at that. So Tiafo definitely number three. I thought about putting him at number two. Uh, after that, I think that's tough. After that, I'm gonna go with uh, Rude. I don't even think Rude's slice is all that good, but this is kind of this paints a a good picture of like the backhand slices in the current top ten are bad. Like it is not. I made a YouTube short about it. I talked about it in a recent mailbag. This is a bad moment for the backhand slice. All right, Rude at number four. I'm going to go with Holger Runa at number five. You know, I think Runa and Rude have similar backhand slices. Very comfortable using it. You know, very comfortable. But usually it doesn't stay all that low or bite all that much. So, like, it, it's solid. They make it in the court. They have pretty good technique on it. So there's nothing really bad about it, but there's it's also just not really a great setup shot. Like it doesn't actually do what a good backhand slice is supposed to do, which is stay low. Um, okay, after that, now we get to kind of the bad backhand slices. Uh, I'm going to go at number six, Andre Rublev here, because Rublev has really improved it. It's much better than it used to be. And then at number seven, I'm going to go with Yannick Sinner, who's also really improved it and it's gotten a lot better and i i think at some point in sinner's career he's gonna have a slice that's actually pretty good but 
So far, I just got to see him. I just got to see it more. I think next year when we have this conversation, center would be much higher on this list. Uh, but but right now he's seven. You know, maybe he should be actually before Rude. So center six, Rublev seven. I would say at eight, let's go Tsitsipas. Tsitsipas at eight. He does not have the worst slice in the top 10. I know it might seem like that. I know he might have the most scrutinized slice in the top 10. But the reality is uh, he's not even close to being worse than the, the next two players uh, because it, it's just that it's just that he slices more often and his slice is probably more important uh, given the other you know, given the the one-handed backhand. And then I would say Medvedev 9 and Fritz 10. You know, Medvedev's backhand slice, pretty bad. Um, although he does have, you know, good enough natural talent, good enough hands to kind of hit some decent backhand slices, even though his technique is really bad. And then Taylor Fritz, like, he basically refuses to hit it, and he just doesn't really have it. So there you have it. Back, top 10 backhand slices ranked. Next one's from Ronnie, who is a member. Thank you for being a member. Remember, you get you do get pr priority in the mailbag if you are a member. And you can hit the join button to contribute $2 a month to support the channel if you would like to become a member. Hey, Gil, thanks for awesome coverage during this year's Wimbledon. What do you think should be Andy Murray's priorities at this stage of his career? He chose to forego Roland Garros to prepare for grass season and delivered wonderfully for the most part until losing to Tsitsipas in a two-day five-setter. What would motivate him to keep go to keep him wait? What would motivate him to keep going into the coming months? How slash where do you think he will choose to end his career? I kind of have a feeling that 2024, if nothing changes, is going to be his last. I think that, you know, as long as he feels like he could have a chance still to kind of break new ground and to, you know, make a make a deep run at a major, which should ultimately be his goal. Um, as long as he feels like he has a chance to do that, I think he keeps on going. And I thought, you know, for for a little bit of time, I think he was babying his body a little bit. And this year, he decided to up his work level to do more fitness and to try to get into better shape and hopefully see how far that could take him. And honestly, it just hasn't taken him as far as I think he wanted. You know, Now, you can say, look, he played really well against Tsitsipas and it's a tough draw because he he wasn't ultimately he wasn't seated and he he almost took him out and Tsitsipas played really really well in the first three sets. Uh, actually, no, sorry, I didn't mean to say first three sets. Tsitsipas played really really well in that match the whole time. Andy doesn't isn't really all that well equipped to attack his weaknesses in terms of the return to the extent that like a Chris Eubanks can with the the Eubanks serve. But nonetheless, I mean, Tsitsipas was really good in the match, played really well. But I think, you know, at the end of the day, these kind of moral victories get pretty old. They get pretty tired. And if Andy doesn't, this is just me speculating, but I think if Andy doesn't do anything big really soon, I do think he is going to stop in 2024. That is just my sense. I think that he was pretty, uh, we're starting to hear him kind of get a little bit discouraged but it, but I also think that he is going to continue to fight really hard. And I, I have a feeling at, at his current level, 
he is good enough to have a moment here. I don't think as consistently as he would like, but I do think he's going to have a moment at some point before he retires. When I say a moment, I just mean he's going to make a, a big run at a big tournament. That's all. Next one's from David. I believe Runa to be the second best young player in the world. What does he have to do to close the gap with Carlitos? Their quarterfinal at Wimbledon was disappointing. I believe Runa's game is too defensive, and that may not be the best strategy against Alcaraz, unlike Sinner, who always gives him trouble with the ultra-offensive style. Thank you for the videos. I learned a lot from you. Appreciate it. Couple things. I think there's multiple things. Now, in the post-match analysis that I did with Alcaraz and Runa, I talked about the forehands, and I think that is currently a gap. And that that kind of ties into what you're saying about just the offensive sensibilities of Alcaraz versus Runa, who can be very offensive. Like he comes forward a ton, like a lot, and his backhand is huge. He's able to serve big. He's He can be offensive with his forehand, but it's not to the level of Alcaraz or Sinner. So to call Runa a defensive player, I think is unfair, although there are moments where he, it seems like he makes a conscious decision to be a defensive player. And then, of course, he's more than willing to just become a absolute retriever and take no risk and loop the ball into the court and run, 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 run. And by the way, He's hard to beat when he's doing that because his defensive skills are so awesome. But I think forehand is currently one gap. I just don't like Runa's forehand nearly as much as I do Alcaraz's at this moment. I think mental stability, emotional stability. Look, Holger, Holger has gotten through so many tough matches. He's completed some great comebacks. He's won tight three setters. He's won tight five setters now. So... You know, I know that Holger sometimes gets slapped with like this mentally weak kind of label. I I hate that. I don't think it's true. I don't think it's right. You know, Runa's mentally pretty good, but he's not perfect. He's very, very, very far from perfect. Uh, I still think he has too many ups and downs in his matches. He needs to get more consistent. He needs to focus uh, and, you know, control his emotions and not have these fluctuations in intensity and attitude during his matches. That's an obstacle. And physically, he's not there yet. But again, he's he's 20. Like, that's where Alcaraz is not normal. That is why I hate it. And I've, I've you know, like, pushed back on, like, Christopher Clary, formerly of the New York Times, now of Substack, uh, when he's, like, during the U.S. Open, he's like, good thing Alcaraz is 19, and that's why he can do this. And I'm like, no, it's not because he's 19. Most 19-year-olds would die. Most 19-year-olds would be dead by now. It's not because he's 19. It's because he's different. It's because he's special. Um, so I think for Runa, like physically he's not there. Mentally he's not quite there. And technically I feel like he's got everything, but the forehand is the biggest thing that lags behind Alcaraz technically. All right. Going pretty long here. We're almost at an hour. So I am going to, uh, how long am I going to, I'm going to keep going. All right, next one's from Anonymous Tennis Follower. Hi, Gil. How much of the WTA Big 3 hype do you buy into? Here are my thoughts. You can exclude them if they're too long. Uh, firstly, the phrase is a bit misleading because it suggests some comparison to Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic. Okay, so for time, I'll cut that out. Yeah, the phrase is a, is a little bit misleading. It is, right? Uh, 
I don't think it's a problem to use the phrase big three, even if there's a understanding, a very kind of clear understanding that these this big three is nothing like that big three. That's fine. If you are trying to get the point across that three players have separated themselves completely from the rest of the pack, and that is why you are calling them a big three, that's fine. Okay. For this reason, I am holding back on riding the hype train for now, as there could very well be new members joining this elite group, or one or two members that could uh, fall off. I think it would be good to wait until at least the start of next year to see how Sabalenka and Rybakina deal with the pressure of defending points. I do, however, subscribe to the notion that right now, Sviantek, Sabalenka, and Rybakina have separated themselves from the pack and have formed a clear tier one on the WTA. Yeah, I think you're on the money. You're spot on with everything you're saying. Uh, it is, yeah, that that's how you should look at it. I mean, they are by far the best three players. I do think that it, it, it the the good thing is that it's been fairly predictable. Just looking at their weapons and what they bring to the table as tennis players, I think that it was, again, pretty easy to see early on that Sabalenka wasn't going anywhere, that Rybakina wasn't going anywhere, that obviously Iga was going to you know, maintain her stature, her status. They're all young. They're all under 25. Well, Sabalenka is 25. Um, but, yeah, it, it is a very short period of time that they have been at the top. So they all need to stay healthy. They all need to continue to kind of improve and it is definitely worth uh, waiting and and holding out until they show that they can continue to compete for majors for a span of two, three years before I think there's going to be any long-term uh, cementing or labeling of these three women as I don't know, even ushering in their own like era. Like there's no Sabalenka, Rybaka, and Sviantec era yet. It, it's just it's just in 2023 they've been the best. That's that's a good way to look at it. From Philip, uh, Gil, do you feel like Djokovic's first serve is a little underpowered for modern tennis standards? Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna not read this entire question because I am trying to wrap up really soon. Uh, yeah, I don't think I I don't think you can say that. I don't think you can say it's underpowered by modern standards uh, just because you look at his – and I, I get it. Like he brings a lot of skill behind his first serve, more skill than almost everybody else. But if you look at like in the last 52 weeks, if you look at uh, first serve win percentage – let's look at it. No, let's look at it for 2023. Um, Djokovic is in what? Well, he's actually higher if we look at it in the last last year because of the indoor hardcourt season where he was so dominant. Last year, he was one, two, three, four, five, sixth. So in the last 52 weeks, he's sixth in first serve win percentage. Here are the players who he's, uh, who he's with. Uh, below him are... Tsitsipas and Dimitrov, believe it or not, but Bublik, Bublik, Tsitsipas, and Dimitrov. Above him are Kyrgios, Fritz, and Berrettini. Felix and Hercoc are one and two. So you see how like Novak is with these big kind of bombers for the most part, besides, I guess, Dimitrov and, and Tsitsipas. And then if you look at ace rate, which shows 
more to what you're saying, uh, then he's much lower. Then he's kind of middle of the pack. But uh, I think the players who who Djokovic is around in ace rate is also illuminating. He is above Sinner, Chorich, Van de Zanschulp, and Echeverry. And he is below, just below, Tsitsipas, Korda, Hachinov, J.J. Wolf, and Zverev. So that is the tier. Yeah, yeah, Zverev doesn't hit that many aces. That's right, because he doesn't hit spots. You know, Zverev just serves like 135, but he's going to make like 75% of his first serves at 135 miles per hour with because he's not hitting close to the lines. That's kind of how Zverev approaches his serve. Um, Zverev, who has just been um, accused for a second time, this time criminally, of physical assault of a um, significant other, his former girlfriend and the mother of his child, Brenda Pateo. Um, yeah, so I, I don't, you know, Djokovic's first serve, it's hard to say it's underpowered when, you know, even the players in ace rate who you would group him with are not players who you would really say that their their first serves are underpowered, save for maybe Sinner, all right? Like, you're not saying that about Zverev, J.J. Wolf, Hachinov, Korda, you, you would maybe before, but not not anymore. Uh, Echeverry, Van de Zanschulp, Chorich, yeah, not really. Sinego was in there. Um, but then with, with first serve points, one, because his spot serving is so good and his skills behind his first serve are so good, now you're looking at Djokovic at kind of the top of the game. So... Of of all of kind of Novak's nitpicks, I don't really think first serve is is an area where you can really nitpick him. But look, are are you at the same time? Your point is taken because you say if you look at most of the top players today: Alcaraz, Sinner, Medvedev, Tsitsipas, Vera, Runa, Rublev, FAA, Hercotch, Berrettini, Fritz, Tiafo. You're saying that almost all of them can serve 130, even 140, and uh, you're saying that Novak can't on his flat serve. Yeah, but, you know, it's overrated. That kind of pace is overrated, you know? Djokovic's first serve is pinpoint accurate, and it also stays, you know, it's it stays really low when he hits a slice serve, and that bothers a lot of players, so. Okay, let's end it on kind of a fun one, lighthearted one from Steve. Hey, Gil, what kind of career would you rather have if you were a pro? A consistent top 5 to 10 player who wins many titles but never gets the big one? Or a one-hit slam wonder who doesn't stick at the top and doesn't win many titles? Uh, Emma Raducanu, Bianca Andreescu, at least for now. Oh, and then the, the examples of players who win many titles but never get a big one is David Ferrer and Alina Svitolina. I would much rather be a player who's like consistent 5'10", a lot of titles, never gets the big one. First of all, winning tour titles is is cool. I mean, that that's awesome. So I, I feel like that if you can win a lot of titles on tour, that's that's pretty good. And then if you can make major quarterfinals, that's also pretty good. Like if you make the quarters at Wimbledon, you have two credentials. Like you get two passes to go to Wimbledon for the rest of your life. You're in the quarterfinal club. And I think if you, and they were talking about this. I was listening to a great podcast that I recommend. It was with Chris Eubanks on uh, Behind the Racket with Mike Cation and uh, Noah Rubin and Blair Henley was on there as well. Uh, where, you know, Eubanks was saying like, 
yeah, now that I'm a Wimbledon quarterfinalist, like that has weight. I get that because like when I'm 50 years old and I'm at the tennis club and people are like, hey man, that's Chris Eubanks. And they're like, oh, who's Chris Eubanks? And the answer is like, dude, he, he made the quarters at Wimbledon. Chris Eubanks made the quarters at Wimbledon. That right there is like, oh, that's a guy. That's a dude. He made the quarters at Wimbledon. So I think if you make major quarterfinals and you win a bunch of titles, man, you can't ask for much more than that. You had an awesome career. Um, versus, let's go to the other side. You win a major, I get that the, the logic doesn't really apply where you're like, you know, if you, if you look at Andrescu and it's like, she won the U.S. Open. That's an even bigger deal than you made the quarters at Wimbledon. The problem is I just think there's a lot of suffering after that that I, don't, I wouldn't want. Like once you win it, now it's like, are you going to win it again? Why aren't you winning it again? You're going to win it again? It's like nobody with Ferrer or Svitolina. Svitolina may be a little bit, but nobody with Ferrer is like, hey, buddy, when are you going to win a slam? Like what's wrong with you? I think everybody understood that Ferrer was kind of a talent maximizer, that he probably wasn't going to get one, but man, he was going to he was going to give it his all and make semis and make finals. It, well, he made one final. Uh, so I just think that's a better life, better career. You know, seems seems like a happier way to go about things. I just feel like Radu Kanu, it's going to be like, what what's wrong with you? You you, you did it there. Like, I mean, Emma. And, and BB, they both have to kind of deal with that now. It happened very, you know, young in their career, and they have to deal with that now. So, no thanks. No thanks. Also, prize money, probably better to be the other way. Thanks for watching, everybody. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe. I'll see you next time. Our house is a mess. Come on in. I'm Amber Wallen, internet comedian, plant queen, and host of your new favorite podcast, Fly on the Wild. Okay, that's pretty presumptuous to assume that this is going to be their favorite podcast, by the way. Like, come on, Amber. Anyway, that wasp that you just heard interrupt me is my husband. And co-host, Benjamin Wallen, also a comedian, and I host people at our home. I have a great wine collection in my cellar. Well, you it's mean not a cellar. the mini fridge. It's a mini fridge. It's a mini yeah. fridge. New episodes of Fly on the Wallen drop every Wednesday. Listen in as we discuss relationships, books, and keeping our sweet baby kid alive while we make laughs on the internet. Subscribe to Fly on the Wallen wherever you get your podcasts.